0: Hacia la a me gusta a me gusta
1: Hello, welcome to the first episode of the Mutual Aid Podcast. I'm Zev Friedman, and we're here to embark on a, an exploration into the topic of mutual aid which is an ancient human cultural pattern that is resurging in modern times, and we'll be talking more about what it is in a moment. But this podcast is the beginning of a, a an effort to talk to people around the United States and the world who are engaged in mutual aid efforts and to understand the state of the art in this in this strategy for cooperation and for charting out a positive and hopeful future for our species, I'm here with Deborah Penberthy in her home and recording studio in Swannanoa, North Carolina, outside of Asheville, North Carolina. We have a purple blanket hanging over the kitchen doorway to create <laughs> good sound, and Deborah is my collaborator on the podcast coming up with the vision for it, and also helping with the technical aspects of recording. So, hi, Debra. Hi, Zob. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's good to be here with you. So, we're going to be getting much more deeply into mutual aid and how it works later on in the podcast, but just to give a brief intro so you know what you're getting yourself into, mutual aid is a historically proven and ancient cultural and economic strategy that. Many people are working to repurpose in our times and address the, the kinds of challenges that we're facing now, things like climate change and species extinction and genocide and warfare, as well as meeting needs for health care and meaningful livelihood at a community scale and reclaiming our politics as true democracies. And mutual aid societies have been formed over the centuries by groups of people who recognized they needed to organize and collaborate at a larger scale than the village or the family. And there are many historical examples of what we now call mutual aid societies, although the people then didn't necessarily call it that, but the Cherokee right around us here in the southern Appalachians have what are called Gadugi, which are their mutual aid societies based in in communal farming, but then extending out to helping other people in the Gadugi Uh, to rebuild a house if it burns down or to take care of a child who is orphaned or to provide food for a family whose crops fail in a given year. Russian peasants during World War I used multi-village mutual aid societies to help up to hundreds of people when a village was destroyed by warfare to house people and provide food for them if their village was destroyed. Um, African Americans starting during the Jim Crow era in the United States, organized using mutual aid societies to take care of each other's basic needs, even build hospitals, provide education, loan money to each other to buy homes and land for farming. Um, And that led up into the civil rights movement. The African-American mutual aid societies combined with churches were what enabled the high level of organization for the civil rights movement. And then mutualistas are Latin American mutual aid societies, which operate in Central America and Mexico, but also in the United States, um, where Lat- uh, Latin American folks who are living in the United States organize to help new immigrants to meet their basic needs, to find access to to legal um, legal help when needed, to learn English, to start businesses. Um, to have health care provided and child care provided. So there are many examples throughout history of how people have used this this primary strategy of mutual aid to do things that we just can't accomplish at a family or village scale. So how I got interested in mutual aid is that I come from the background of human ecology and permaculture, which are both these systems-level approaches to the ecological and social and economic challenges that we are facing as a species on this planet right now with many variations from place to place. But what human ecology and permaculture are a, um, an attempt to address is how to design a truly sustainable, or we use the word regenerative, future for ourselves, and that's going to look like many diverse approaches to living in different regions of the world, but all of them have some things in common. And permaculture is is an attempt to tease out those patterns of sustainable living, compassionate living, and then to have a design system that allows us to create these regenerative human habitats and life ways in any region in the world, in any situation. So I'm a permaculture consultant who I, I work with landowners and all kinds of different community groups helping to design landscapes and infrastructure that provide for this sustainable future. Um, And I also work as an educator, a permaculture educator, and I live at a place called Earth Haven Village. You can check it out, earthhaven.org which is about an hour outside of Asheville, North Carolina, and that's a 330-acre intentional community that's off the grid and has been there for 25 years and is a kind of community-scale experiment in permaculture. But one of the things that I've recognized working in this field uh, for about 18 years now is that we need ways to work together at a larger scale to have more impact to develop this vision of sustainable life ways diverse sustainable life ways to develop it more with more depth and with more breadth and how and have it affect more people and address more of the challenges that we're facing and i see that the movement so far has not succeeded Um, to the level we need to even in its 35 years of operation. So mutual aid is this ancient cultural strategy that our ancestors have used that we can now re-engage in this time to apply insights from permaculture and other places and work together at a scale, pool resources um, to begin to implement some of these These insights at a scale that's going to help to dig us out of the mess that we're in and grow the positive future that we're longing for. Once I became aware of mutual aid, I was delighted to learn about the existence of an organization called HUMANS, which stands for Humans United in Mutual Aid Networks, or HUMANS as an acronym. And you can check their website out at mutualaid.com network.org. Stephanie Rerick is, is a primary director of that effort, which is a planetary network of people working to develop regional mutual aid initiatives. Um, and, and that's really exciting because we need that, type, that level of information sharing, that level of, of experience sharing to be successful in all, all of our own regional initiatives. So humans, you can check out a brief video that kind of explains what they're doing on the website. And it's a, they have a, a really impressive website with lots of tools for collaboration and sharing information and, and um, skills. And there are frequent calls that are being coordinated with people attending from around the world who are leading and founding at different stages of mutual aid initiatives in their own regions um, and on those calls, we get to share stories, we get to troubleshoot, we get to share successes and challenges that we're experiencing, and it's developing a sense of solidarity. And that's actually what the point of, of this podcast is, is to follow in, the, in those footsteps and create a, a tool that allows us to gather the state of the art of what is happening in Mutual aid work around the world, learn from what people have done and are doing so that we can all amplify our effects and do it better more quickly. So, check out Humans for more information on that. And what that has culminated in, in my own work and with a team here, including Deborah, is beginning to form the WNC, that's Western North Carolina Mutual Aid Network. And so, this is a prototype. A pilot project if you will informing a mutual aid initiative that's organized around a credit union community owned credit union and a healthcare cooperative as core features then using the credit union which is owned and operated by mutual aid members to fund many other types of initiatives we need things like carbon farming co-ops and land trust and housing co-ops and elder and child care and so on, and we'll go into that in more detail later. So that's a little bit about the basic framework of this Mutual Aid podcast and and how I got into it. And now I'd love to invite Deborah to speak about how your interest and involvement emerged in this topic.
2: Yeah, thanks, Deb. So I've been friends with Stephanie since back in the 90s when we worked for Greenpeace in Madison, Wisconsin. And um, after that, I followed with interest her continuing career in activism, where she founded what I believe is the largest time bank in the country, the Dane County Time Bank, uh, where people can exchange their skills and not have to do it directly. Um, and it's it's a large network that's also tied into the juvenile justice system. Um, I followed that, and then I also was involved in a time bank out in Los Angeles. And in my own experiences, I I began to see that there needed to be a more robust way of developing a sharing economy. I was living out in Los Angeles, and I found that there was a lack of community, um, and people's economic situation often impacted the quality of their life in a, in a myriad of ways. Um, but one of the most important was that sometimes friendship and community was sacrificed to convenience or survival, uh, because people are struggling so hard just to have a place to live and um, keep things going. And so um, Stephanie had been invited to Asheville to come and speak to a group of interested people who wanted to possibly start a mutual aid network here. And she said, why don't you come? Because I was looking to move to North Carolina, but I hadn't picked the city. So I came up in October, and that's where I met Yuseb. Mm. And um, I was really excited about the idea of it. There was quite a bit of interest and excitement. And since then, it's been a little bit more challenging, kind of diffuse, and I kind of think it kind of just points to the uh, bigness mm-hmm. <laughs> of the idea Uh, Of a mutual aid network. And so you and I have been talking since I'd say December um, about the idea of this podcast as sort of a nexus uh, to exchange information, to bring bring in information about existing mutual aid networks and talk about what's happening with the humans now and then form ideas um, and and not have to reinvent the wheel yeah. in our idea of mm-hmm. the Western North Carolina Mutual Aid Network. So anyway, I ended up moving here. Um, I've been here for a little while and it's been slow going, but I am really excited that we're starting on this. And I think there's a ton of potential given the uh, geography, the way that people live in Western North Carolina. People are pretty tied to the land. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a, a long tradition that hopefully you can tap, tap into. So I'm excited to be rejuvenating this idea together.
1: Excellent. Thanks for being here together. Yeah. So in this episode, we're going to be going through our lives and how our own experiences and projects and thinking have evolved to bring us to this moment of initiating this Mutual Aid podcast, and then how the podcast itself is is interlinked with the beginning formation of the Western North Carolina Mutual Aid Network, and how we are imagining that unfolding and working and getting people involved, so we're, we're going to be kind of pursuing those parallel threads of Mutual Aid the big picture of it around the world, and then mutual aid—the on-the-ground, tangible experience and process that we're going through with with the Western North Carolina initiative. And in this first episode, it's going to be Deborah and myself. We're going to also briefly interview Tammy Leah Meyer, who's going to be our guest on the second episode. She lives up in Vancouver, British Columbia, and she's going to be um, our 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 main meat of the second episode and then in future podcasts we're going to be roving around the planet finding all kinds of leaders working in different settings and different communities different strategies different needs and trying to really develop kind of a patterns language of insights uh, from what works in mutual aid and how to make it um, something that's really serving, that's really that's really impactful in different communities.
2: Great, so uh, I love the idea of us roving around. I, we definitely need video for that. We're gonna have to put some. Uh, we're gonna have to get a website and <laughs> put up uh, some video of that too when that happens. It
1: could be like the Mars land rover, but it could be the mutual aid Earth rover. Oh,
2: awesome! And we just yeah. need to build the first mutual aid network in order to come up with the money and exactly. the to do it's that. Good. Awesome! But be the credit
1: union's first project.
2: <laughs> right. Um, so, Zev, when you and I were talking, when we first got to know each other uh, just a few months ago, you talked to me about a time in your life when you lived off very little money and uh, were doing something like sort of living off the sharing economy, except there wasn't really a sharing economy to support you. <laughs> um, tell me more about your life uh, because I think that's so key. It's a key window into why mutual aid, ne- aid networks are so
1: necessary. Yes. Yeah, well, I, I grew up in an activist family, social and ecological activist family, where the message in the household was always that that our um, mission and the values and ethics that we live by are more important than making lots of money. Although we had enough and, and got by and were never starving, it was the focus was on uh, what it meant to be an ethical human. And so, that was modeled for me when I was a kid, and then when I was about 17, I started having my own kind of experiences and epiphanies about the ecological and cultural situation on the planet, and the level of beauty and, uh, and wonder that I felt looking at humans and what we're capable of, but in the same breath, the level of destruction and loss and greed yeah. and suffering that we are creating. And, um, and so then that led me down a pathway of saying, what can I do about this? How can I contribute to keeping alive the beauty way, in, or the many diverse beauty ways in human culture and life, and to, to keeping alive the ecological indigenous life ways that there are many diverse forms of. And so then that led me down a path. I just said, I have to do everything I can right now. So I got really extreme, and I got rid of my old beer car that i had and i started riding my bicycle everywhere and growing food on multiple little gorilla garden plots hidden throughout the city of asheville and i built a little house out of timber and earth and straw in someone's wow. backyard and lived in that and um and needless to say didn't have health care or <laughs> any uh, extravagancies like that or and,
2: complete protection from the rain. Or yeah, well, no, it, was, that, it was it was, it was well, well built. built. It was protected okay.
1: from the rain. Um, the 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 roof was metal. Okay, it was salvaged metal, but it was metal. Um, and you know, and I I just I thought I was going to transform everything all at once in my own life and all around me, and I didn't yet understand the slow moving ship of culture and human consciousness and economics and just how profound the momentum is in industrial society towards extinction actually is what I now think and if we want to change that that trajectory we have a lot of work to do and so I I live for about six or seven years on um three to five thousand dollars a year wow. basically because I was living rent free and doing work exchange and growing a lot of food and buying minimal food and so on and um and so I eventually got exhausted doing that and there were a lot of sacrifices I made doing that. And I also just started to understand that the type of impact I was really longing for is something that's a bigger project than, than my own lifetime. And it's not just about me getting an experience of off-the-grid living or being able to pretend as if I'm not complicit in the industrial uh, war machine but rather that what I really care about is a long-term trajectory of human well-being and culture and ecology, something that was here before I got here and is going to be here after I'm gone, uh, or may it be so. And so that's when I started to get interested in larger collaborative strategies, of which mutual aid, I think, is the most developed example, and this is especially persuasive because it is something that all of our ancestors have also found themselves doing and discovering um, and it said it understands that no human, no single human no even small group of humans have the capacity to change big things in a lasting and life-giving way that it takes long-term cultural movements, long-term uh, mechanisms for passing down knowledge and wisdom and practices and ecological management strategies these long-term cultural ecosystems to really grow the type of future that I think I I long for and I think a lot of people are longing for. And so that's that's how I ended up emerging into permaculture and then into into this mutual aid um, initiative is through that own that lived experience.
2: Yeah. So tell me about I know you've done a lot of reading on existing mutual aid societies. Tell me about one of the ones that's the most exciting something that you think we could draw upon for today's mutual aid networks.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Well, It's interesting. There are different initiatives that have different strengths, I think. So, for instance, there's something in in New Zealand going on with these lending pools, which is kind of an aspect of mutual aid, is how we work with money in our lives and and the existence of the cash economy. And in, in New Zealand, these lending pools are small, informal groups of people who have a formal... I say informal, but they have a formal commitment to each other where they each put in a certain amount of money each month and then they take turns lending that money to each other to start businesses, to buy land, houses, do things their families need. And that's just a way of harnessing the power of collaboration, economic collaboration, and that's only about 10 families in each of those lending pools. That's very small scale. Um, On a different scale, there are what I mentioned earlier, the African-American Mutual Aid societies. Uh, which I think some of them have uh, have gone have defunct in terms of their original form since the Civil Rights Movement, but they existed starting in the late 1800s after, after the Civil War and so-called Jim Crow era coming up towards the Civil Rights Movement because... African Americans were so disempowered by the institutionalized racism, banks would not lend them money to buy houses, to start businesses, to buy land. So in that, in that way, they were, the disempowerment was institutional, and they said, well, we're going to take this into our own hands. They formed these groups with their own credit unions, and they used that, that money and that um, taking their support away from the white supremacist banks in order to fund all the things they needed. That allowed many of them to buy homes, to start businesses, to buy land and start farms, some of which still exist, um, to start their own hospitals and healthcare and education centers, leadership initiatives. All that kind of stuff was funded and developed through their mutual aid groups. And then all of that culminated in a type of cultural glue, which then allowed them to organize the civil rights movement because they had the trust and interdependency from having taken care of each other in those very tangible daily ways that then develop the relationships over time to enable that mass political movement and changing the large-scale political and economic institutions in the United States, which clearly still need a lot of change, but the civil rights movement was a major culmination of, of that organizing work through mutual aid-type uh, community efforts.
2: Was this in particular communities within the U.S. or was it widespread?
1: Widespread. Yeah, there's a whole, um, there there are entire websites talking about many dozens of groups that existed throughout the United States. Oh, wow. Yeah.
2: Okay. Uh, speaking of websites, Seb, I think you wanted to set aside some time to talk to our listeners about some resources they can check out.
1: Yes, good idea. So, first of all... We encourage you to check out the WNC Mutual Aid Society Facebook page. And that's where um, we've been putting up articles and I've been writing original pieces about our efforts here. And please be sure to like and follow that. And that will be where we'll announce future episodes of this podcast as well. And then regarding the African-American Mutual Aid Societies in the United States and uh, the, we we're referencing historically also to to bring in some of the new generation of efforts along those lines. There's something called Cooperation Jackson in Jackson, Missouri, which is doing really impressive things. And there's an episode of a podcast about them. The podcast is called Upstream. So look for Upstream's episode with Cooperation Jackson and check out cooperationjackson.org uh, for their um, efforts and then something called the Southern Movement Assembly. Their website is southtosouth.org, which is also working along these lines. Finally, Naomi Klein's Next System Project is a really excellent uh, compilation of different big movers and shakers in the alternative economics and uh, democracy revitalization project who are who've authored a number of podcasts and articles related to developing our next life-giving political and economic systems. That's thenextsystem.org.
2: Great. So, Zev, um, you talked a little bit about the Western North Carolina... Mutual Aid Network and how you've been envisioning it. Because you were really coming up with this society idea before you had found out about the humans, right? Yes, that's right. I mean, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> the larger network to right. create the sharing economy. You've always known about people, right? Um, <laughs> so tell me about your vision. It's, um, it's large and right. ambitious. <laughs> I want to hear more about
1: that. Yes. Well, I, you know, I t- try to think about projects that are uh, kind of multi-generational Scope And in permaculture, we often say, like, we plan for a 150-year time frame for a piece of land. So that's longer than most of us are going to live anyway. <laughs> that's based on the cycle of a, of a forest and how long a old, an old-growth tree lives here. So we try to plan for that time scale. And some of these things, we need to be thinking in, on that level. So this is a vision that will take a while and certainly evolve as we, as we go with it. But... Uh, the idea that I've been working with and, and then hoping to engage a team and we will develop the vision even collaboratively and it will surely change as we get more deeply into it, but for the Western North Carolina Mutual Aid Society is uh, a uh, kind of networked organization that is organized around a core of a community-owned credit union and a healthcare cooperative. Um, and then the credit union serves as the economic heartbeat of the whole thing, which allows us to invest a lot of money, millions of dollars, in the types of other initiatives that we need to take care of people, of basic needs for people, and remove support from the types of uh, economic activities that we don't support that are destroying the earth and hurting people, and put power back into the hands of those who are really doing life-giving things. So we're talking about funding things like Rural healthcare centers, like mutual aid community centers, which are big multiple service uh, buildings. that There's always stuff going on there, whether it's uh, organic food drop-offs from local farmers, educational um, events, the uh, credit union branch in the community center, um, people meeting and having social events and dancing and music at night, child care during the day, on and on, things like that. So really vital mutual aid community center is part of this vision. And by the way, that's not just something that I'm thinking about. This uh, Southern Movement Assembly, south dot has a very coincident vision and actually has five uh, mutual aid community centers established in the Southeast U.S. already, including yeah. one in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, and then also funding things like carbon farming initiatives. Carbon farming is a term that Eric Tonesmeyer has popularized, which is about land use and sustainable farming methods that sequester carbon, bring carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, put it in the soil through good farming practices, thereby helping to reduce the uh, the power of climate change, while also helping us to adapt to the climate change that's already happening and have more resilient agriculture. We need to be funding that type of land use, which is the kind of thing I work on professionally as a permaculture consultant right now. We need to be funding that stuff at a much larger level and having regional scale permaculture where we're changing the trajectory of the use of large tracts of land. So all these kinds of things, it's a whole systemic recreation and renewal of uh, democracy and economics and land use and education and the way we organize our communities and helping us to get ourselves out of isolation and nuclear family settings where it's a constant struggle and into a place where we can thrive and have our needs met met, and then have the energy and imagination freed up to be able to work on a long-term vision for our society and culture that's what we're that's what i'm going for with mutual aid and and seeking partners and and kind of a dream team to pursue um
2: can i ask a question in there yeah Um, One of the core facets that really interests me in the Mutual Aid Network is reducing our reliance on the cash economy and increasing our reliance on the sharing economy. And I mean the true sharing economy. There's been a lot of talk about like Uber and Lyft and Airbnb being the sharing economy, and I just want to clarify for our listeners that we don't mean that.
1: Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Is
2: there a better term that people come up with for that?
1: Not that I'm aware of. Okay.
2: Yeah. Um, So, and one of the things that's on the website for the Mutual Aid Network that I, I plan to do sometime soon is to work mm. on a posterity budget. Oh, yeah. Yeah, where you write down how you're meeting your needs for all of your, uh, whatever it is you need to live and thrive. Um, and most people right now, that's through a job in the cash economy, but then seeing all the different ways that you can start to reduce that by, you know, growing your own food or sharing, trading, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, tell me about how you envision the credit union mm. and these other facets relating to this like posterity budget and reducing our need for the cash
1: economy. Thank you. Yeah. So it's true that the credit union, which is, 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 is a bank, you know, but it's a community owned bank as opposed to a commercial bank, uh, is not an alternative economy thing in the, in the sense that it would be organized around dollars. And that comes from my own kind of a cycle of lived experience that I've gone through in my own life with an attempt to radically separate myself from the cash economy like we spoke about earlier Mm -hmm. um and then I I began to recognize over time that um the level of sacrifice necessary to completely separate from the cash economy is so high that mm-hmm. there is almost nobody, at myself included, who's willing to make that many sacrifices. That means not having modern healthcare, that means not being able to travel to visit family. That means only eating food that I'm growing, only using clothing that I'm making and on oh, and on. Yeah. You know, and it's a it's a radical thing because what it actually takes is a culture mm-hmm. to provide an a, a separate alternative economy that's not based around cash. It takes hundreds of people working together. Humans are cultural animals. We are born into the need for a human ecosystem where we have different ages and different people with different skill sets and talents and personalities all doing things for each other, and we are inherently interdependent in that way. And so one person cannot create an alternative life way for her or himself. That's what I discovered for myself. That was my experience. And so... I think that ultimately we do need to get into a less cash-based economy, but that we need to have a transition plan for that. I think the transition plan is probably going to be 50 years long. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, we need to be providing for the basic needs of our communities and and frankly, fighting fascist tendencies that are emerging or in global political structures and dealing with severe climate change. So the, the credit union... Is, is a transition strategy in that it sets us up to get the most possible leverage in the current economic conditions from each dollar, for, for, from yeah. each dollar. but I mean in the economic system the way it exists, the way the economic mm-hmm. system exists is based on debt and loans. <clears throat> and many people um, are in very hard situations because of the debt structure that's inherent to the structure of our economy. And so... That's all, that's all, without going too deeply into it, but that's all dependent on the way that banks are set up and the way money is loaned from larger banks to smaller banks to individuals and businesses. And to get more leverage in that system, we need to get it where people can get low interest loans to do good endeavors, Mm -hmm. even to buy houses or cars for ourselves, but also to start up Carbon farming businesses and schools and mutual aid community centers, we need to be able to get low interest loans for those things. Because right now, most banks are loaning money to big developments who don't care about the earth. They're loaning money to petroleum and fossil fuel companies. They're loaning money to the military industrial complex. That's where our money that we have in banks is going. My money that I just get a paycheck every month or whatever and put that in a bank is going to pay for the military industrial complex. Yeah. So that's not what I want. So, so by having a credit having union, a credit we, we divert that though. and we get more leverage and more self determination in then choosing because this would be a, a, a democratically run credit union. That means that um, there would be professionals in it who vet loan. Um, loan applications just like in normal banks, but then once those are vetted to see if they're viable ideas, then the credit union members get to democratically vote and choose which projects to fund from Mm -hmm. those ones that are vetted. So that actually gives us a community, the ability to make those choices and to support the things that we know we need. And so if you have 10,000 members in a credit union, each of them with an average, say, of of a $10,000 deposit in the bank, then that rapidly adds up. We're talking about millions of dollars, mm-hmm. and a, a credit union can invest about a quarter of its principal each year in loans. So that's why I think it's a powerful strategy. Um, not because I want to get into banking. <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> yeah, and I yeah, wasn't yeah, asking yeah. the question as yeah. a criticism. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
3: yeah.
2: Um, it was more: how do we talk about reducing our our emphasis on the cash yeah. economy while we're still in it?
1: And, um, yeah. you know, how's that a tool for that? Well, to say one more word on yeah. that, I mean, so, and I, I personally participate, and I know you do too, in alternative economics, for instance, at Earth Even, we have an alternative currency. Mm. Um, that's based, It's called weeps and it's based on human hours. And oh, nice. whenever someone does more hours a week than are required for the community service, then we are issued these paper Leaps, and then those are spent around the community to pay for herbal medicines or for massage or for someone to fix a car or to do child care for sometimes homegrown foods and stuff like that so we do displace some use of U.S. dollars in that way right um, and, and there's a there's a time banking system in Asheville as well I'm not actually not participating in that yet myself I do barter with people for my permaculture services sometimes when it makes sense you know mm-hmm. and yet I've also found I can't pay for a car and gas with alternative currency. I can't buy lots of foods with that. I can't pay rent with alternative currency. I can't pay for healthcare Mm -hmm. with alternative currency. So there are a lot of core needs that, that the cash economy unfortunately has us, has our attention compelled towards those needs. So that's why we participate. So I'm like, how do we flip that around and change that dynamic and take the power in that setting? And a credit union seems to me like the most powerful tool we have available for that. So that's why I see it at the core of, of the mutual aid initiative in Western North Carolina
2: makes sense and um, yeah. one of the other things that the mutual aid or the humans are set up to do is to make it so that we don't have to just trade with our um, alternative own. currency within our own town yes but let's say there's somebody who manufactures something in Germany and they're part of the humans right we could eventually trade so that it expands the possibility of what we can trade within this this economy and, and in, a, in an economy that reflects our values yeah yeah
1: yeah I think that's a really visionary idea
2: yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, is this a good time for us to segue to introducing our little teaser that we're, our next guest we're going to have on for a minute? I think so. Yeah. So do you want to talk about Tammy and how we're going to bring her on in a second? That'd
1: be great. Yeah. Tammy Leah Meyer, we were introduced to by Stephanie Rurick, who's the um, big leader in humans. And Tammy is a really seasoned activist in the mutual aid movement. And, of course, we'll let her speak for herself. Uh, But she's been at this for a long time. She's out in Vancouver, British Columbia. um, And she's been really generous with us with her time and advice in setting up this podcast and developing these ideas. She's in particular been involved in a community-owned credit union herself out in Vancouver, as well as time banking. Um, And she has a passion around not only podcasts, but embedding podcasts in a multimedia context that really communicates a rich message to people and has a strong impact in communities and in helping the causes that they're intended to help. So we're really honored to have Tammy Weahmeyer join us for a teaser now and come back in our second episode for an in-depth interview with her.
3: Let's get her on the phone. Hi, Tammy. This is uh, Zev. Calling you, and it's really good to have you on the Mutual Aid
4: Podcast. Awesome. Thank you so much for inviting.
3: Yeah, it's, it's really our pleasure. And so we just introduced you, and we'd really love to hear about your work as a mutual aid advocate, and especially with what you're telling me about the Global Challenges
4: Collaboration. Fantastic. Tell us about those things. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so first, I'll start with I, I came into contact with Stephanie Rerick in twenty fifteen at the Impact Economy Summit, and I was really inspired by her work and and what she what she's been doing in helping to develop these nodes and pods of mutual aid really hit me as that is what is needed because we need to work outside of the current financial system and kind of weave our gifts and abilities and what we can do together. Um, and so um, I one of the first things that I, I did with Stephanie was to do a podcast with my friend uh, Don Morrison from the Working Group on Indigenous Food Sovereignty, which is a really important place to be able to look at mutual aid and look at alternative economies. There's so much wisdom and knowledge within Indigenous cultures. Um, And then more recently, really what I've been focusing my attention on is on a a project that was co-convened last year, um, the Global Challenges Collaboration. And we put in a proposal to the Global Challenges Foundation, which we did not win. Uh, But we've been in a a practice of uh, creating long-form, deep-dive podcasts with each other since Mm. October 2017. And right Uh now, we're doing four calls a week. And so they're all in Zoom, Uh video conference software, um, and convening conversations around global challenges, who we all are, and how we can help each other to... Uh, progress our projects towards global systems change. Wow. Yeah.
3: That, that's, that's really fascinating, and uh, I bet a lot of us would love to be a wizard on the wall during those calls.
4: Well, they're all recorded, uh, and they're all available online if anyone wants to join the Global Challenges collaboration on Facebook.
3: <laughs> all right. Thank you for telling us. And mm-hmm. okay, so are those, in fact, the Deep Dives podcasts that you're referring to? Yes. Recording those calls, I see. Yes. Got it. And are there any other websites or uh, resources you'd like to direct our listeners to while you're at
4: it? Uh, well, we are still working on that. We've been using the Facebook page as a place to kind of collect the what we're doing and have kind of that platform for discourse. Um, mm-hmm. And this today, actually, uh, on Fridays, we do... Friday experiment and today one of our uh, one of our members Joshua bridge is uh, convening uh, helping us to to uh, all put blogs together on WordPress and co-author um, blogs to be able to connect our work in a digital space so he's running a working mm-hmm. wor- workshop today to be able to have more digital places that are outside of Facebook, which is, of course, not perfect. It's got problems um, in terms of integrity mm-hmm. and uh, really, mm-hmm. you know, anyway. <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah, yeah.
4: Um, and so, yeah, today we're going to be kind of taking more steps towards having more visibility while modeling that interconnectivity and personal sovereignty at the same time.
3: mm sounds very rich, so for those of you who are fascinated by this, please join us in the second episode of Mutual Aid Podcast to hear an in-depth interview with Tammy, and and we might also get into her nine years of being on the board at a cooperative credit union in Vancouver during that time, which we were just talking about credit unions as a strategy um, before we got on the phone with you. Wonderful. So we can ask you in depth about your experience there. Great. And we're looking forward to that conversation with you. So thanks so much for your, for your time, Tammy.
4: Wonderful. Thank you, though.
3: Yeah, you're welcome.
4: Talk All soon. right. Look forward to the next one. Me too. Bye-bye.
0: Caminando, caminando, vamos caminando,
2: So Zeb, since today's episode, um, we've really taken a deep dive into your life and your work and how it relates to the Mutually Network. So I want to make sure that we talk a little bit before we end our episode about permaculture and how it relates. And um, you've told me a little about the biological underpinnings of permaculture and how you think it relates to mutual aid societies. Can you talk about that a bit?
1: Sure. Yes, there's this guy, Kropotkin, who is a Russian living in the UK in the late 1800s. He was basically like a late contemporary with Darwin. And he's written a book called Mutual Aid, a Factor in Evolution, And that is a fascinating book, and it's a foundational one for the whole mutual aid movement, especially in modern times. And what he goes through in that book, the first third of the book, is him saying, you know what, there's actually more cooperation in life forms and biology and ecosystems than there is competition. There are both things for sure, but there's more cooperation, and the, the survival of the fittest actually means survival of the most cooperative and he says the reason why the survival of the fittest thing got turned into the competition was that the industrialists of the time in the UK took, they cherry-picked Darwin's information and wanted to use it to prove that rich people are more fit and can therefore do whatever they want to poor people, and so they they co-opted it for that ideology, but in his book he goes to example after example after example in biological systems of the way penguins crowd together for heat, and then take turns being at the center to stay warm and manage to survive in extremely cold temperatures, whereas alone or in small groups, they would just all die. Right? He goes into mutualistic examples between species of how birds eat insects off the fur of mammals, thereby reducing the parasite load on the mammals and getting food for the birds, and on and on and on. And so the mutualism, what ecologists now call mutualism, that's the dominant pattern. And yes, there's some competition, but that's, that's a minor pattern compared to the cooperation. And so he goes through and details that, and then in the last two-thirds of the book, he goes through the vast history, just the bones of it, of... Cooperation and mutual aid in human culture and society starting thousands of years ago and working through all societies, all continents up through the present. Um, and so that's what we're working with permaculture. A lot of people call it eco-mimicry. It's we say the best ideas that we can use in human design processes are those that we find in nature and then we mimic them in human endeavors. And so this is yet another form of that mutual aid is mimicking the deep pattern of cooperation that we find in nature and saying how do we apply that to human economics and culture and society and relationships instead of this competitive individualistic thing which is driving us extinct. And so that's the foundation of it really is that observation of this deep natural pattern.
2: Awesome. It makes me think of Darwinian feminism, too. Mm. Maybe we can get
1: into that in a future
2: episode and how those two ideas relate.
1: Fascinating. I want to hear about that.
2: Yeah. Well, we've got many more episodes to go, right? That's the idea here. May it be so. All right. So do you want to talk about um, what we're going to be doing in the next episode?
1: Great. So in our next episode, we'll be going deep with Tammy Leah Myers and hearing more about her Global Challenges collaboration group and her nine year past of working uh, on the board of a cooperative credit union in Vancouver, British Columbia. So look forward to that. And please join us. This has been episode number one of the Mutual Aid Podcast. And don't forget to go to our Facebook page, WNC Mutual Aid Society. And like and follow us there, please, if you'd like to. And also, I manage that page, so you can message me there if you want to be in touch about collaboration or getting involved with this project. See you next time.
2: Thank you for listening, and thank you to our music partners, Rising Appalachia, who provided today's beautiful song, Kamenando. You may find them on the web at risingappalachia.com. Please enjoy the rest of their track now, and we'll talk to you soon.
0: Ya no más desnutrición, queremos liberación, no al egoísmo, no a la guerra, va a vivir la vida plena.